the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Shundron Thomas. The book is titled Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into your vocation. That's coming up later this hour on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, at least two police officers were shot in Louisville, Kentucky on Wednesday night as protesters flocked to the streets rallying against a grand jury decision regarding three officers who were involved in a March drug raid that left Breonna Taylor dead. Well, the grand jury indicted one of the officers, former, former Louisville Metro Police Officer Brett Hankison, for wanton endangerment over stray bullets that found their way into a neighboring family's home. He was fired in June, but none of the officers was actually charged with the death of Brianna Taylor. Well, shortly after a police news conference, reports emerged on social media that a third police officer may have been injured. Uh, Wednesday's two police victims were being uh, treated at a hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Interim Louisville Police uh, Metro Chief Robert Schroeder told reporters at about 10 p.m. Eastern time, President Trump on Wednesday night tweeted he was praying for the two police officers that were shot in Louisville. The federal government stands behind you and is ready to help. Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher tweeted late um, on Wednesday, our hearts go out to the two officers who were shot. Please pray for them and their families and pray for our city and all who are in pain today. For anyone who is still out, please go home tonight. Violence doesn't get us closer to a fair, just and equitable city. Now, one of the grievances after this decision that was announced yesterday is that while one of the officers was charged with bullets that made their way into an adjoining apartment, didn't injure anyone. There was no accountability for the death of one individual who was unarmed and was an innocent bystander. We also learned through all of this that this was not a no-knock warrant. The police officers had actually identified themselves. They knocked on the door. Whether or not they were heard or understood is another matter, but it wasn't a no-knock police raid. Well, new details are emerging from the uh, night Breonna Taylor was shot after the review of over 1,200 crime scene photos. The uh, attorneys, none of the individuals, the grand jury, have the capacity to release the details to the general public. The judge, however, does. And some are suggesting that one way to address the grievance that was expressed not only in Louisville but across the country, including Portland, would be to release those details. Meanwhile, LeBron James on Breonna Taylor said the most disrespected person on earth is a black woman. Well, Rand Paul says that he'll refer the Senate panel Uh, report on the Biden's uh, Ukraine to the Department of Justice for a criminal probe. Uh, The U.S. Senator plans to refer the Senate Homeland Security and Finance Committee's report on its investigation into Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings to the Justice Department later this week for a criminal investigation, he told the story on Wednesday. I think riding on Air Force Two and doing business is illegal and probably a felony, um, he uh, said. 
I think it's illegal to take money from a Russian politician's wife. $3.5 million was uh, it uh, reported as it was reported. Paul was refer- referencing rather items from the new report, which details Hunter Biden's role on the board of the Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings and his alleged extensive and complex financial transactions. The Senate committees revealed they had obtained records that show potential criminal activity relating to those transactions among and between Hunter Biden, his family and his associates with Ukrainian, Russian, Kazakh and Chinese nationals. Well, GOP-led committees have released their interim report on the Bidens and Burisma. More action is expected. Kim Strassel says the new report reveals Biden's wink-nod approach to Hunter's business dealings overseas, and the Senate Homeland Security Committee authorized subpoenas for testimony from Obama officials as part of the Russia probe. Well, the acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf on Wednesday fired back at a series of allegations about his time in charge of the home Department of Homeland Security as he was questioned by senators during a hearing to confirm him for the role permanently. Wolf has held the position in an acting capacity since last year, replacing then acting Secretary Kevin McLeanan. President Trump formally nominated Wolf for the position last month. The Department of Homeland Security has been in the crosshairs over a number of issues, including the treatment of illegal immigrants, intelligence surrounding potential foreign interference in elections, and its approach to handling anarchist violence in cities like Portland. His testimony came with uh, reports that consulting firms where Wolf's wife has been an executive received more than $6 million in DHS contracts since September of 2018. NBC reported the consulting company had a long history of federal contracts, but worked for DHS after Wolf became Transportation Secretary, Administration Chief of Staff in 2017. Wolf said he found out about the contracts in response to media inquiries, but had no role in the procurements. Whether I was Chief of Staff, Acting Secretary, Undersecretary, or any other position at the department, I have no role in procurements. I don't even see procurements until they are released in the news on the street, he said. In other news, the department uh, chief says that border crossers now are mostly single adults coming for economic reasons. And he also says lone homegrown terror threat. That's the Department of Homeland Security's focus 19 years after 9-11-2001. President Trump has predicted that the Supreme Court will decide the outcome of the election as he pushes for a quick confirmation to replace the now-deceased jurist, and former NFL player Marsilius Wiley rips Black Lives Matter after it responds to a page on disrupting the nuclear family structure. Mark Stein blasted uh, Seattle's hiring of a former pimp as an alternative to police, saying this is a joke. And a police union leader, says Portland Mayor Wheeler, now realizes defunding police was a mistake. The New York Times chairman Arthur Sulzberger Jr. is retiring, handing the role to his son. He will be the next chairman. And the coronavirus testing czar claims that he's never been pressured by Trump to change the guidance. WeWork sells the majority stake in a Chinese business, cutting costs. And airline passengers want to see barriers to boost confidence, says the industry executives, determining whether or not those um, uh, barriers will be put in place. Meanwhile, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has called on uh, Mayor uh, Cuomo and de Blasio to raise New York taxes. Apparently, she wants to thin out the population even more. Portland saw increased violence due to police uh, fund reduction, and African-Americans are the number one victims. According to the story, the Portland mayor now admits cutting police funding was a mistake. Going back to the uh, treatment of Bork and uh, 
on through Kavanaugh, Mitch McConnell is uh, blistered Chuck Schumer over the hypocrisy of this latest bout of uh, replacing a Supreme Court justice. He explained how it was Schumer who began the filibuster of the candidates. Interesting uh, story on Barrett's uh, takedown of qualified immunity in a case of horrible misuse can be read in reason. And the public knows surprisingly little about the members of the Supreme Court. National Review tries to fill in the blanks. Kevin McCarthy points out that if Nancy Pelosi tries to impeach the president for appointing a Supreme Court justice, as the Constitution requires him to do, we will take steps to remove her as speaker. It's going to get ugly, ladies and gentlemen. California's governor has banned the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. Now, presumably, he will no longer be the governor at that time. But Gavin Newsom has decided he can do this by executive order. And a 77-year-old veteran with a MAGA hat was beaten. Two people attacked him due to his hat. The Seattle City Council has overridden the mayor's veto of police cuts. There will be fewer police to stop the madness in Seattle as a consequence. President Trump plans to sign the Born Alive executive order to protect abortion survivors. And he's unveiling his health care plan covering pre-existing conditions sometime in the next several weeks. Uh, Catholic Nancy Pelosi says Christ would not want Trump honored at a national Catholic prayer breakfast. Rather interesting statement given by someone who uh, does not live up to the tenets of her own faith and has been called on it by priests and bishops. A judge ordered Eric Trump to comply with uh, New York's um, attorney general's witch hunt subpoena before Election Day. That will move forward. And early data suggests newly reopened schools are avoiding surges in cases. The CDC director says over 90 percent of Americans have not yet been exposed to COVID-19. And Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine has advanced, sparking new optimism. The president has announced new Cuba economic sanctions at the Bay of Pigs Memorial. And Mike Pompeo says China is peddling communist propaganda in the U.S. state and local governments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to continue to look at the news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll hear from Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Well, what could possibly go wrong? That's the question being asked by the Washington Examiner as trays of mail, including absentee ballots, were found in a ditch in Wisconsin. And Seattle has hired a convicted pimp, paying him $150,000 salary to advise on alternatives to policing. He's apparently had an inside track on what police do, having been a convicted felon. 1789, on this day in history, President George Washington signs a Judiciary Act, establishing America's federal court system and creating the post of Attorney General. 1869, thousands of businessmen are ruined in a Wall Street panic known as Black Friday after financiers Jay Gould and James Fisk attempt to corner the gold market. 1960, the USS Enterprise, the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, is launched at Newport News, Virginia. On this day in history, 1969, the trial of the Chicago 8, later 7, begins. Five would be convicted of crossing state lines to incite riots in the 1968 Democratic Convention, but the convictions would be ultimately overturned. 1988, Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson wins the men's 100-meter dash at the Seoul Summer Olympics, but he would be disqualified three days later for using anabolic steroids. 
On this day in history, also in 1988, members of the Eastern Massachusetts Episcopal Diocese elect Barbara Harris, the first female bishop in the church's history. And finally, on this day in history, 2002, British Prime Minister Tony Blair asserts that Iraq has a growing arsenal of chemical and biological weapons and plans to use them as he unveils an intelligence dossier to a special session of the parliament. Well, the president said earlier today in a um, question that was designed to goad him, there won't be a transfer. Frankly, there will be a continuation. Now, he was asked a question about whether or not there'll be a peaceful transition of power. He gave them a political answer. He doesn't expect to lose. Therefore, he expects there will be a continuation. But the furor that has followed has been quite remarkable, but not surprising. One way or another, there will be a peaceful transition of power, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said. Uh, Schumer spoke after Trump was asked a gotcha question about a peaceful transfer of power at a White House news conference. Well, in recent weeks, Democrats and their media allies have floated the idea that President Trump, whom they label a dictator, will not leave the White House if he loses the election, but will stay while challenging the election results. Well, in response to the question on Wednesday, the president said there won't be a transfer. Frankly, there will be a continuation. In other words, he expects to be reelected. Well, here's the question presented to Trump, his response, then Schumer's comment in context. The reporter, Mr. President, real quickly, win, lose or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election? And there has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across the country, red and uh, your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Trump, well, We're going to have to see what happens. You know that I have been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. And the reporter interrupts. I understand that. But people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transfer of power? And of course, people rioting has nothing to do with the outcome of the election. He's making that connection. But the president responds. We want to get rid of the ballots and we will have um, A very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There will be a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it and you know who knows it uh, better than anybody else. The Democrats know it better than anybody else, end quote. Okay, it was a long sort of rambling answer. But the reporter kept pressing the president as he called on some uh, someone else. Uh, go ahead. Please go ahead. Yes, go ahead. You have asked a question. Go ahead, please. Trump said trying to get the peaceful transfer reporter off his back. Well, a short time later, CNN's Aaron Burnett asked Schumer for his response to Trump. Aaron, President Trump is not a dictator and the American people will not allow him to be one, Schumer said. This man has no no honesty, honor, values or faith in the American system. He doesn't deserve to be president and hopefully he will learn his lesson. Well, Burnett uh, noted that military leaders have said they don't see U.S. troops playing a role in ousting the president if the election outcome is disputed. How do you see this playing out? She asked uh, Schumer. Well, the way I see it playing out, the American people are wedded to democracy. Uh, We believe in democracy and the kind of thing Trump is talking about, vote fraud, just will not happen. Well, there are lots of examples where it is happening, whether or not it will happen to the degree that it will result in a a contested outcome remains to be seen. But he went on to say one way or another, there'll be a peaceful transition of power. So the furor is over a question and an inartful answer given by the president, but a political answer suggesting that I have no intention of losing. I plan to win and therefore it'll be a continuation rather than a transfer of power, sort of uh, dodging the core of the question. So that's what that's all about. Well, civil rights attorney Daryl Parks reacted to uh, Kentucky's uh, attorney general's announcement on the daily briefing. 
uh, Taylor is a 26-year-old uh, black uh, Bjorna Taylor was a 26-year-old black emergency medical worker. She was shot five times by police. And much of the uh, the uproar that has followed this announcement from the grand jury is the fact that no officer is actually being held accountable for her death. She was shot, apparently it was six times, one in the foot, but officially they had said previously five times. Uh, after a Kentucky grand jury opted to indict only one of the three Louisville police officers in the raid that led to her death, Earlier this year, the city braced for the protests. Well, former Sergeant uh, Brett Hatkison, as I mentioned, was charged with the three counts of wanton endangerment, but not for the death of Breonna Taylor. Well, the attorney for Taylor's family, Ben Crump, tweeted that the decision was outrageous and offensive. Well, Louisville's mayor, Greg Fisher, declared a state of emergency, announced a 72-hour curfew starting at 9 and the Louisville Metro Police Department announced it was putting barricades around the downtown perimeter where the protests had been concentrated. The National Guard was also deployed in the city and the curfew remains in place. It was not a peaceful night in Louisville. Well, the Louisville Metro Police Department announced that uh, nearly 100 arrests were made overnight uh, through these demonstrations after the grand jury decision was announced. A suspect is accused in shooting two Louisville police officers, both of whom are expected to fully recover during those protests on Wednesday evening. Um, that individual has also been identified, a 26-year-old charged with wanton endangerment and assault of a police officer. He will be arraigned tomorrow. He was charged in connection to the shootings that wounded two police officers during the Breonna Taylor protests. Well, shots rang out when uh, Louisville police officers were conducting crowd control operations uh, in response to the large crowd that had set fires, caused property damage, failed to disperse after being warned, according to the post-arrest complaint filed in Jefferson County. Uh, Johnson intentionally used a handgun to fire multiple bullets at officers addressing the crowd, the complaint uh, says two officers were struck by uh, bullets causing serious physical injury. Police said witnesses spotted Johnson firing the handgun at officers and running from the scene. And the complaint said that he was also in possession of a handgun at the time of his arrest. And law enforcement recovered video of the shooting showing the suspect fire at the officers. But once again, they are expected to recover. In Portland, uh, downtown Portland demonstrations demanding police stop killing black people came to an abrupt end on Wednesday after a handful of protesters targeted officers and a precinct with fire and rockets. Police extinguished the fires as they burned the edge of an awning. But soon after, someone threw a Molotov cocktail toward the officers, one of three thrown during the night. Police ordered the hundreds of people gathered in honor of Breonna Taylor to leave, then used force to move them, according to uh, uh, reports and federal officers were there to help. Police deemed the protest a riot. Several people were arrested. Um, and so it has uh, gone in Portland and I imagine will continue to go uh, in the days ahead. Meanwhile, the Justice Department on Thursday announced charges against more than 300 people who allegedly committed crimes since the end of May under the guise of peaceful protests. Through these acts, the Justice Department uh, points out, these individuals have shown minimal regard to their communities and for the safety of others and themselves. Hundreds of people were arrested in 29 states and are accused of federal crimes ranging from attempted murder, assault on a law enforcement officer, damaging federal property and arson, according to the Department of Justice. I hope we are praying for our country, for our communities, for justice and peace. Um, we are far from that at this point. And uh, without divine intervention, it's not at all clear that this is going to resolve 
uh, in a way that uh, most of us are going to be not only uh, satisfied, but safe or happy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a few moments for a break. And when we come back, we'll hear from Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into a Vocation. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is many of us struggle to find a sense of purpose or fulfillment in what we do. And the question is, is it possible for us to truly flourish at work or do we just have jobs? Well, business executive Chandrong Thomas reveals how work is intended to produce a lasting value and should be meaningful and productive. A healthy attitude toward work and the workplace requires intentionality and effort. He addresses issues of work ethics, um, character formation and work life synergy to find better harmony between what we do and who we are. Through empirical research and real life stories, he reveals fundamental truths and easy to remember concepts for joy at work, regardless of your occupation, your age or career stage. And that may seem like a tall order, but we're going to talk about that in uh, in just a moment. Once again, my guest this afternoon is Shundron Thomas. He is president of a trillion-dollar global investment management business and is a management group member of a leading financial services company. He previously advised institutional equity investors, a vice president of Goldman Sachs, and held positions in sales, trading, and research in the fixed income division of Morgan Stanley. He is an engaged civic leader, serving as a trustee for Wheaton College, and as board of directors of the Museum of Science and Industry. He also serves as board governor for the Investment Company Institute. Uh, Mr. Thomas is a motivational speaker, lecturer, speaking nationally on a variety of issues. He also serves as an elder and board member of his local church. He's happily married and has two sons. Joins us today to talk about his uh, new book, Discovery, or rather Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, after reading that long bio, I'm I'm surprised that you have time <laughs> to talk with us, but I'm grateful that you do. Oh, it's uh, always have time for things that are important. In the introduction, you begin by referencing an article that was published by Gallup in which they point out that the world has an employee engagement crisis with serious and potentially lasting repercussions for the global economy. Let's talk about what employee engagement is and are we facing a crisis? So I think when you start with engagement, uh, and so a lot of companies look at this statistic, and basically what we're saying when we talk about engaged employees, it means engaged employees are, A, enthused about uh, their work and their workplace. And enthused employees will do things like, for example, recommend their employer as a a preferred place of employment to others. Uh, They also are are willing to give uh, what I would call an outsized or an exceptional effort to their workplace, right? And so if you were thinking of having any sort of uh, workplace, you would want those types of employees. Uh, The issue that you have, though, is when you look at these statistics globally, it's very sobering. Uh, They say approximately about 13% of all employees globally would be described as engaged employees. And so simply put, the vast majority of employees that show up to work every day don't really enjoy or feel fulfilled in their workplace or their work environment. Is that the nature of the work that we do? It's less meaningful than perhaps previous generations, or is it something that we bring to our work or fail to bring to our work that explains that lack of engagement? Well, I think there's always two sides to the coin. So 
if you think about it, there, there certainly are situations where people are in very challenged work situations, right? Um, they could be dealing with issues of discrimination, sexism. Uh, you, you, you can name the various things. But the reality is these are very exceptional situations. And so in the vast number of instances, you have two things working together. From the standpoint of the employer, are we creating an environment where people can flourish? But most importantly, I believe it's the perspective and the mindset uh, of the employee, the worker themselves, uh, that really affects this. Henry Allen has a great uh, quote in, in, in one of his books. He says, our life is not just about what we experience, so to speak, but it's about what we think and feel about we, what we experience. And I think that's very true or apropos as it pertains to how people experience uh, their work and their work experience. Now, words are very important, <clears throat> excuse me, in your book. And one of the distinctions that you make very clearly is the distinction between the word work, the concept of work, and a job. <clears throat> can you make that, can you explain that to us and why it's important that as we're considering transforming our occupation into a vocation, it's important to define our terms? Yeah. And, and the reason it's important, and I think this is very interesting because if you just look at the etymology of words, it's very telling. So mm -hmm. when you think about a job, Think about that in the context of a duty or an assignment. The very etymology of uh, the word uh, refers to uh, work we do for a wage or, or compensation, right? Uh, it refers to a piece or component of work. Now, if you think of the word work uh, in and of itself, it really refers to something more like a skilled trade. Uh, you think of work as being uh, something uh, not only that takes uh, great skill, but it, it, it involves the whole self. And so you think of work also in its etymology, that very word, is being part of, say, a, a greater undertaking, right? And so if you looked at the terms, you might associate the word job, for example, uh, more closely with what we might refer to as occupation, whereas you might associate the word work uh, with the, a word that we use called vocation. So think about that being something more like your life's work or your calling. Now, you uh, point out that uh, your vocation is a calling. Uh, and for some of our listeners, that would seem very clear and obvious because they're doing the kind of work that uh, is, is satisfying, it's fulfilling, and they're doing work that's meaningful. But for those who perhaps have work that uh, means standing behind a counter in a, f a fast food restaurant or the kind of work that probably aligns better with the definition of job, is it possible to find joy in that kind of work? And so, and I think this is one of the most important things about the book, because I think the, what we're often um, led to uh, believe is that one can only find joy or fulfillment in some particular unique thing uh, that presumably, uh, before we were born, we were selected to do, right? But I think in reality, um, first of all, there is dignity in all work. There is also the ability of all work to help develop in us work ethic and ultimately for us to find joy. So I'll give one example. Um, I think of the various kinds of work that I have, and people look at what I do today, but I said my work experience started out when I was 11, going on 12 years old, and I began to earn money or help around the house by cutting grass or shoveling snow or different things like that. And there was not only the development of certain character traits, but there was actually a, a, a sense of meaning or fulfillment that came from being able to contribute to what my family was trying to achieve or to help the greater good. So that's one example of ways that we can be fulfilled or finding meaning in our work. 
Uh, I give the simple example in the book. I'm one of those people that likes hands-on work. Uh, so if I'm around the house, I mean, something like cleaning or power washing my deck, mowing my lawn, believe it or not, uh, some of those times I actually am able to sort of lose myself in my work, uh, be, be at one with myself, um, sometimes uh, just that activity. And so, again, this thought that we can't find fulfillment uh, in things that aren't part of some quote-unquote special calling, I think is a misperception about the value of work. I so appreciate that. And I appreciate your mentioning your work history because it's really quite interesting. People might assume because of the lofty positions that you now hold that you can't relate to the kind of work that many of us who are average find ourselves doing. And yet it's possible to discover joy in the work that we have been uh, given to do. Um, in your first, uh, the first part of the book, you really focus on our attitude, and that has such a significant impact on our whole approach to working. In fact, I was thinking about there's a woman who is older than the average employee in a McDonald's. I drive up to the window, and I'm always excited when she's there because of her attitude. Um, she yeah. has a smile on her face. She greets you warmly. She asks you how you do, you're doing in a way that would that brings dignity to her work. And I'm always glad when I see her, when I approach the McDonald's, I hope that she's working. Uh, she is the, um, I think, an illustration of what you're talking about, having an attitude uh, that brings value to your work. Yes. You know, I think many of us, when we look at experiences in our lives, and one of the things that I do in the, the book is I, I give real life examples, either, either people that I have interacted with in my life, or people in different professions. Uh, there's a police officer or school teacher, different people I interview. Uh, and it's amazing to see how the mindset or the attitude uh, affects not only how they experience their work, but just as importantly, how they experience their life. Uh, I give one anecdote in the book, similar to what you just described, of a wonderful woman who was a security guard um, at the uh, building that I worked with years ago when I worked for Goldman Sachs. And I'll never forget, she always had that just amazing disposition, always greeted uh, people with a smile. And she would always say, you know, God bless you whenever I would come into the building. And I remember her having that same disposition even the day after uh, when I was coming to work after the attacks of 9-11. And the anecdote in the book, which is a true anecdote, I I asked her about the source of this. And she just began to express how much gratitude that she had for her just ability to do work. Mm-hmm. and how she had done different types of work over the course of her life. But she was really grateful for what she experienced, the people that she interacted with, what she learned in that job. And, and that example for me many years ago, uh, it just really always sat with me in terms of what kind of attitude we should have towards our work. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. One of the things I wanted to mention was that in the first part of the book, there's a reference to Genesis 2.15 and uh, just focusing on the the fact that we are designed to work and whatever that work happens to be when we approach it with the right attitude, um, we are honoring uh, the very one who designed us. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Shundron Thomas, who is the author of Discover Joy in Work, the transforming, or rather transforming your occupation into your vocation. And it really is a challenge to think about the work of our hands, the value that it has, because uh, work is honorable, and how we should approach it in a way that uh, that brings uh, perhaps greater satisfaction because we value the work that we do. In this section on the, in the workplace, you uh, write about our attitude, our approach, and our aptitude, as well as 
um, the achievement that is the result of all of that. Can you talk a bit about our approach and aptitude? Because that can elevate the work that we're doing in ways that uh, don't necessarily reflect a change in what we're actually doing, but a change in our approach. You're referring to, in the, in the first segment of the book, I, I introduce uh, what I call the four A's. We talked about the first attitude, uh, but those second two uh, that you refer to are approach and aptitude. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to approach, it's just uh, realizing that given our unique sort of circumstances, wherever we work, uh, that we have to think about the approach that we take not only towards actually our work product, whatever we're contributing, but also the approach that we take to to those that we work with, uh, because we virtually all work in community. And I I, I give examples of simple disciplines such as prioritization. Many people come to the workplace, and their day just happens to them. And so the proverbial checklist that we have when we walk into our workplace almost never gets fully completed. But we actually get more meaning or fulfillment out of our work when we're able to accomplish those things that are most important. So having the discipline to prioritize and reprioritize and make sure you're completing uh, the most important things. Partnerships. Here's a simple thing. It is uh, research shows that if an individual has at least just one person in the workplace that they view as a personal friend, it dramatically changes their experience in the workplace. And so that also says that the vast majority of people at work don't have even one person that they look at uh, where they've developed a relationship where they're a close personal friend. So if we can partner, we talk about that, with others in the workplace, it changes the nature of our experience. When you talk about aptitude, I would just simply say um, skills make a difference. And so all of us enjoy doing work that we're really good at, and the opposite is true. So the importance of actually developing professionally and personally uh, to, be, to really moving our focus to things that we're highly skilled at within the context of whatever our job is, is critically important for us to feel uh, that we're actually enjoying our work. In the second part of your book, you write about uh, work ethic. And when you think about work ethic, you often think about, do I manage the uh, the company's uh, uh, things well? Am I managing my time well? And so on. But you really focus on some things that we find uh, mentioned in Scripture, the love of money, the praise of people, the pride of life. Talk about a work ethic and how uh, addressing these three areas can help us find the joy that uh, the title of your book suggests we can enjoy in our work. Well, the first thing, and, and I'm really glad that you brought out this, this thought of work ethic, because Fundamentally, that means that we believe that work in and of itself has value. It has the ability to develop character in us. And so it means that work has value beyond what I would call the typical external motivators that we all look to. Now, in that segment of the book, I have what I refer to that you've referenced as the three rewards. Uh, Number one is remuneration, getting paid for the work that we do. Uh, two is recognition, right? People want to be recognized or, or praised for what they do. And the third one is respect, right? Now, none of those things inherently are bad, but the, the fundamental issue is when your external motivation is greater than your internal drive or motivation, then you're out of balance. And so to really have come from a place where we recognize those things have their relevance, but we keep them in the right context, And our self-motivation, our desire to grow and build our character, our desire to be a good uh, employee, our desire to be a good partner in the workplace, 
uh, our desire to do work that is missional and has lasting value, if those things are greater than what I call those external motivators, you find that those individuals uh, find not only a deep fulfillment, uh, but joy in their work. That is so excellent. In the third part of your book, and there are um, are three parts uh, in the book, uh, you focus on your work life, what uh, work reveals about your purpose and the requirement of effort. Talk a little bit about work life, because it does consume so much of so many of our uh, our, our days, uh, that it's important to put it in a proper context so that we do enjoy the work that, uh, that we have? Well, uh, the first thing um, that I, I try to uh, address is there's this term that we hear a lot, a lot work-life balance. Uh, and while I get the spirit of what people are suggesting, I think the reality is uh, there's no perfect balance that we, we find, so to speak, if you were trying to weigh those skills. Uh, think about the demands of just of everyday life. Uh, you know, I was thinking about in preparation for this, I think about not only what you do in your work in the marketplace, but what you do in the church and so many different communities. I'm sure that it's always a battle to, quote unquote, to find some proverbial sense of balance. And so the real thing that I think we seek to find is what I describe as work-life synergy, that your work is integrated with your life. And so your work ultimately becomes an expression of the mission of your life. And when you're at one, when there's a synergy between what you do vocationally and the life you're seeking to lead, your values and your vision for your life, that's when you really enjoy your work. So, so in that segment of the book, we give seven principles uh, that we think when, that I believe when we, we follow those principles, we are able to achieve that sense of work-life synergy. And ultimately, when you achieve that, that, that sense of work-life synergy, uh, that's when you're more at one. And, and where we conclude is, I believe, as a person of faith, that's when our work ultimately glorifies God. Well, I so appreciate how you discourage us from compartmentalizing and imagining that work is in one segment that has very little value, but then you move over to <clears throat> one's faith or, <clears throat> excuse me, or, or church, and that's a different uh, value. But the seven principles that you point out uh, really help us gain perspective on the value of all of the time that is devoted uh, to work and uh, help us to put things into perspective. Yeah, it's so important because, again, when I think about my own, not not professional journey, but my personal maturity and journey in life, I think early on in my career, there was sort of this thought of there's, there's work and, and then there's what I do uh, in my faith walk. Right. Uh, and the reality is, I came to conclude very early on that that was far too much dissonance, um, that when I'm spending most of my waking hours mm-hmm. pursuing my occupation and ultimately my vocation, how can I have that sort of separation? And so if, if, if God is not using right, my work experience to perfect me, that's a lot of hours of the day where I'm not growing or maturing spiritually or being perfected. If those very circumstances don't allow me to make meaningful connections with people uh, that transcend just what we do at work, I believe relationships are one of those things that transition from this life to the next. And so, again, I think that either consciously or unconsciously, we've accepted many times a false dichotomy. And what in part the book tries to do is bring uh, people back into the place where work is truly what God intended. I think it's really important. You, you referenced right before the break um, how the book of Genesis begins. 
And I always tell people, uh, the Bible is written very intentionally. And so we do not find a God at rest when we open the book. We find a God at work. And we find the same God when he introduces or forms the physical man. One of the first things that we see he introduces man mm-hmm. to is productive work. Yeah, yeah. Who would you say is your primary audience? So this is an important question as well, because uh, at the very beginning of the book, the dedication simply says, I'm writing to the working world. And, and I truly do mean that. Uh, sometimes what happens, uh, particularly uh, when you're a person of faith, they say, well, is this just a book that's written to uh, people who are Christians or believers or, or just people who share the same faith? And I said, no. I said, certainly anything that I communicate is a reflection of that faith. Uh, but the reality is every day I go to work in a pluralistic uh, workplace. And I work with people of many ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, and of many faiths. But truth is indeed evident, and people connect on those truths. And I think we are all meant to have a life that shines, that ultimately reflects Christ in our lives, and is meant to touch every person that we touch. I believe that this unique perspective of work that I have is something that is intended to reach other people that are seeking this sense of meaningfulness in their work. And that can be the 522-year-old that's fresh out of college, pursuing their first uh, job. Uh, That can be uh, the wonderful individual who's coming back from serving our country in the military and looking to deploy skills that they got in their training. It can be the person that's in their late 40s having that proverbial midlife crisis, or it could be the person uh, that's 60 years old that's thinking about their legacy as they look forward in terms of how they want to deploy themselves to their work. Well, I'm glad you answered the question that way, because that is precisely the way I see the book having impact in all of those scenarios, uh, including my own. Once again, the title of the book is Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. It's very practical. I think you'll find it uh, very helpful. And I thank you so much for the book and for taking time to share it with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you. Again, my guest, Chandron Thomas. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. I think you'll find it very, very useful. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Well, not surprisingly, hundreds of people came to the Supreme Court to pay their last respects to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mourners lined up outside the white marble building in Washington where her flag-draped casket was placed after a private ceremony at the court's Great Hall. Her voice in court and in our conference rooms was soft, but when she spoke, people listened. That's a quote from Chief Justice John Roberts during his speech of the September 23rd ceremony after three days of tributes to Ginsburg, who passed less than six weeks after her 87th birthday. In the 1950s, she was one of the first women to attend Harvard Law School. When her husband got a job in New York, she transferred to Columbia Law School, graduated at the top of her class. Yet she was only offered a position of legal secretary due to skepticism about women in more senior legal positions at that time. She was a trailblazer. During her time at the American Civil Liberties Union in the 70s, she argued against many statutes that favored either men or women, and she successfully had them repealed as unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. 
She was appointed to the District of Columbia Appeals Court in 1980 by President Jimmy Carter and to the Supreme Court in 1993 by President Bill Clinton. The oldest member of the court, she battled health problems in her last years, including cancer and broken bones. She was tough, brave, a fighter, a winner, but also thoughtful, careful, compassionate and honest. Roberts went on to say during the ceremony, despite her liberal leanings, she earned respect on both sides of the aisle. She was brilliant, says Senator Ted Cruz, who argued nine cases before the justice during his time as Texas Solicitor General. She was uh, very prim and proper. She had a personality, uh, almost a a librarian, he said, uh, during his uh, podcast earlier this month. Her questions were always careful and incisive. She was a dangerous questioner, he went on to point out. Ginsburg, on the 25th, will become the first woman to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol when her casket is placed in National Statuary Hall. The Capitol held a similar ceremony for civil rights pioneer Rosa Parks in 2005, but she lay in honor as she didn't hold government or military office. Due to the pandemic, the Capitol ceremony will be limited to invited guests only, and at the courthouse, social distancing and face coverings were required. Dozens of her former clerks stood at attention when the casket arrived at the courthouse. It was quite a spectacle to see. On a personal level, she was such an amazing person. She had a mind Like a steel trap, Jill Alexander, now 59, whose husband served as a clerk for Ginsburg when she was an appeals court judge, says her casket rested on the Lincoln um, pine board platform draped with black cloth that was used to support President Abraham Lincoln's casket when he lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda after his assassination in 1985. And with the courthouse closed to the public, the justices are due to hear oral arguments by teleconference next month. Ginsburg's courtroom chair and the bench in front of it were draped with the black wool crepe as well to mark the occasion, a tradition that dates back to 1873. The black drape also hung over the courtroom doors. Public viewing runs um, through the 23rd uh, between 9 and 10 p.m. and the 24th as well. A private internment service is, plan- service, rather, is planned for next week at Arlington National Cemetery. Her husband, Martin, was buried there in 2010. President Trump paid his respects to the late justice uh, earlier in the day today at the Supreme Court. Uh, According to his um, press secretary, he was not favorably received by all present, but he did go and he did pay his last respects. Well, Amy Coney Barrett is not the only potential judge who's had her faith maligned by the left in the name of protecting legal abortion. Well, in the few days since Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, much of the media and most of uh, uh, those on the left who are activists have been gearing up to prevent the president's eventual nominee from making it onto the court. Now, many expect that his selection will be Amy Coney Barrett, although he hasn't named that individual and won't until Saturday. But she's a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. She's been vetted by uh, the Senate before. She's a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School and a Catholic mother of seven, including two children adopted from Haiti and one child with Down syndrome. Well, from the perspective of progressives, the reasons for this line of attack is obvious. It's the same attack that they uh, lob against any Catholic public figure whom they suspect might actually subscribe to Catholic teaching on abortion. Any Catholic, in other words, who actually embraces the faith they claim to profess. Well, the centrality of abortion in this whole scheme is starkly obvious. Democratic presidential nominee Biden also calls himself a Catholic, as do plenty of Democrat politicians, Nancy Pelosi, for example. But like Biden, most of those Democrats have managed to rationalize away the church's dogmatic prohibition on the taking of innocent human life and thus Catholicism's non-negotiable opposition to abortion. 
When was the last time you saw anyone, much less anyone on the left or in the media, insinuate that Biden will be incapable of doing his job as president because of his Catholic faith? I'll wait while you try to think. Well, Barrett, meanwhile, though she hasn't even been selected as the president's nominee, has already faced such attacks. When she was nominated to the Seventh Circuit in 2017, Democratic senators questioned her during the confirmation hearing about her Catholicism, insinuating that it might render her unfit to serve as a judge. The fact that she's a serious Catholic, takes her faith seriously, and is pro-life is enough to disqualify her, some would argue, from the bench. Again, the president will make that announcement on Saturday, and then the games will begin. Now, it's being suggested that the Democrats have already decided they're not going to vote for whomever the president puts forward. And some members of the Senate are suggesting perhaps uh, they should just forego the lengthy process of hearings and just hold a floor vote on the Senate, uh, knowing that the, uh, the Democrats have already indicated they have no intention of supporting any candidate that the president would bring forward. This would certainly abbreviate the process. Uh, And it uh, wouldn't be the first time uh, there weren't hearings uh, prior to a Supreme Court justice being considered. So we'll keep our eyes open on what actually happens in the midst of all of this. Meanwhile, police are investigating how three trays of mail, including absentee ballots, ended up in a ditch in Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is a swing state. Uh, Voters could prove crucial in the upcoming elections. Now, this is an example of why some are suggesting this could very well be a contested election. Well, the um, uh, county sheriff's office said that the mail was found around 8 a.m. Tuesday morning near the intersection of Highway 96. Means nothing to most of us. Uh, but nonetheless, it was immediately returned to the U.S. Postal Service. The United States Postal Inspection Service immediately began investigating, and they reserved further comment on the matter until that is complete. That's what the spokesperson said in a statement. Well, the incident comes a mere five weeks, think about it, five weeks before the presidential election, which has been steeped in partisan bickering over the system of mail-in and absentee ballots and wavering trust in the alternative system. Well, due to the coronavirus so that marked a grim milestone this week for of over 200,000 deaths in the U.S., voters are expected to cast ballots by mail in record numbers. Uh, we expect more than 3 million Wisconsin residents to vote in the November election, which means even more first-time absentee by mail voters uh, May, uh, Megan Wolf, who's the elections commissioner and administrator, said in a statement earlier this month. Well, Wolf said that before the pandemic, only about six percent of Wisconsin voters cast an absentee ballot by mail. During the state's presidential preference primaries in April, that number jumped to 60 percent from six to 60 percent when one point one million or one point five five million voters uh, were absentee by mail. Well, during the partisan primary in August, Uh, Wolf uh, said that approximately 82 percent of the 867,000 votes cast were absentee, either by mail or in the clerk's uh, office. So that is a dramatic shift when you don't have a system in place, as does Oregon, for example, that was uh, prepared for over a period of several years before it was implemented. Well, during the primaries, thousands of voters from all over the state, but particularly in Oshkosh and Appleton areas, complained that they didn't receive the absentee ballots they requested. Complaints uh, filed with the Elections Commission included one from a Milwaukee postal worker 
uh, who said three bins of absentee ballots were located and had never been delivered, according to the New York Times. Well, in early September, information packets were mailed to 2.6 million registered voters about their options for voting in November, and it urged them to request absentee ballots before the deadline in October. That's the 29th, warning that it could take up to seven days for voters to receive the ballots in the mail and another seven days so once it's posted back to the Elections Commission. Well, President Trump, um, speaking with Brian Kilmeade on a radio program on Thursday, said that mail-in ballots are a horror show and missing ballots are emblematic of thousands of ballots that could get lost this election season. Well, his comments come even as Democrats and election officials hope to encourage voter turnout, of course, even if uh, not in person and reinforce confidence in the mail-in system. Well, strategists predict that Democrats are more likely to vote by mail than Republicans, which could affect some of the most closely watched races in the country. And Wisconsin, a key battleground state that Trump snagged for the party's first time in over 30 years by just 27,000 votes in 2016, Biden holds a five-point lead over the incumbent president, according to a recent poll by Reuters Ipsos. It's going to be an interesting season. Put on your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Mark Twain once said, there's no distinctly American criminal class except Congress. Of course, it was tongue in cheek. Uh, given the national debt that's approaching $27 trillion, it's hard to argue with him. But our nation beyond the beltway has many criminals, just as it always has. And the most ambitious of these criminals, the felons, have historically been denied the right to vote. Now, this seems like a win-win. Law-abiding citizens can take comfort in knowing that their votes aren't being canceled by criminals, while criminals can rest easy in knowing that they don't have to spend the first Tuesday in November standing in line to vote straight-ticket Democrat. Well, until now. Well, Douglas Andrews, in a recent column with the Patriot Post, points out that unfortunately the party of Boss Tweed Alcee Hastings and Hunter Biden are finally caught on, and so has its friend in big media. As uh, Washington Examiner's Jog uh, Hagee reported, MTV Comedy Central and VH1 jointly donated $250,000 to pay the fines, the fees, and restitution for about 1,200 Florida felons otherwise eligible to vote in November's election. The donation from the network's parent corporation, ViacomCBS, uh, was made to the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, which has raised more than $4 million. That's enough to pay off fines and register 4,000 felons to vote before the state's October 5th registration deadline. So Dan Rather's old network, Viacom CBS, in addition to sabotaging presidential elections by publishing uh, fake but accurate news stories, is now paying for felons to vote. Now, why is it as uh, if they somehow knew felons were overwhelmingly predisposed to voting for Democrats, which, of course, uh, they are? Even NBA or social justice warrior and money-grubbing chai com sympathizer LeBron James is getting into the act. Uh, James, the L.A. Laker, whose net worth is nearing half a billion dollars, has reportedly partnered with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition to reach out to convicted felons and offer to pay whatever outstanding fines may be keeping them from being eligible to vote. Well, James has uh, taken some heat lately, and deservedly. His public pronouncements of late have been unfavorable, even inflammatory toward law enforcement. He was recently called out by the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, who challenged him to match the $100,000 reward being offered for the apprehension of the cold-blooded murder of uh, those two um, uh, police officers, um, Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who challenged him 
to do just that in Compton. Well, Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody is uh, engaged in an investigation into Mr. Bloomberg and his donation to the help felons vote prior to this election. She, in fact, defended her call. This was on Thursday um, for investigating into whether the billionaire violated state law when he reportedly raised $16 million to pay fines and restitution of 32,000 felons in that state to help them be eligible to vote by November 3rd, the presidential election. We know to win in Florida, we will need to persuade, motivate, and add new voters to the Biden column. This is what Bloomberg's memo said, the Washington Post reported. This means we need to explore all avenues for finding the needed votes when so many voters are already determined. Moody said the memo raised concerns. Is he purchasing the votes? Now, when you look at the memo and what it uh, what was alleged, when you hear words like we need to get this done, investing money to target particular groups of voters that may be predisposed to vote a certain way, that raises concerns that you are directly influencing or even indirectly giving money to persuade voters to go a certain way. Well, that doesn't matter what the party is, um, uh, what party it is that triggers Florida law, she says. And under Florida law, you can't directly or indirectly give anything of value to persuade or entice a vote. She says, um, and so as attorney general, and I believe any official charged with enforcing election laws, we have to be clear about what we're doing, which is why when I asked for further investigation, I attached all the relevant law, even opinions that describe if you target even particular voters that may be predisposed to vote a particular way, that may be illegal. Now, there are different legal opinions as to whether or not Mike Bloomberg and others, for that matter, are engaged in that kind of vote buying um, because it's more general than an individual being handed uh, money directly. And I should also point out that these kinds of crimes have rarely been prosecuted. But nonetheless, the Florida AG is uh, looking into and investigating Bloomberg and those donations to see whether or not that's what's uh, being done uh, to get felons eligible to vote before the November 3rd election to vote for Biden. Well, Facebook has shut down more than 180 fake accounts, groups, pages and Instagram accounts that it deemed uh, to be run by China, which posted content on the U.S. presidential election, spread Beijing's talking points on a range of topics from the South China Sea to Hong Kong protests. Well, the social media giant announced the takedown in a blog post that was published on the 22nd, saying that these accounts were a violation of its rules against coordinated, inauthentic behavior on behalf of a foreign or government entity. Well, in total, 155 Facebook accounts, 11 pages, nine groups and six Instagram accounts were shut down. The Instagram app is owned by Facebook. Nathaniel Gleicher, who is Facebook's head of security policy and author of the blog post, explained that while people behind these accounts tried to conceal their identity and their location, including by using virtual private networks or VPNs, the company was able to trace the account operators to South China's Fuhian province. Well, Chinese um, netizens, as they're commonly uh, called, use VPNs to bypass China's Internet blockage and access websites banned in China, such as Facebook, Instagram, and Google. Well, according to Facebook, this Chinese-created network focused most of its posts in on Southeast Asia, posting news about global events such as China and U.S. naval activities in the South China Sea, protests in Hong Kong, and support for current Filipino President Duarte and the possible 2022 presidential bid of his daughter, uh, who is currently the mayor of a city in the Philippines. People behind these ac- accounts, uh, they post in Chinese, in Filipino, and in English. 
Uh, U.S. network analysts, um, they are investigating uh, these recent de- deleted uh, links from China, revealing more information about their tactics uh, to determine not only how they were successful at penetrating the uh, Facebook um, and other platforms, but how to prevent it in the future and to identify others that may still be effective. President Trump announced on Wednesday that he's going to sign an executive order to ensure that babies who are born alive receive proper medical care. Although the president didn't go into detail about what the order would do, proposals earlier this year in the House and Senate would require health care professionals to treat a baby born alive after an attempted abortion, the same as medical professionals would treat any other newborn. I will always defend the sacred right to life, the president said in remarks at the 16th annual National Catholic Prayer Breakfast held virtually this year. Today, I'm announcing that I will be signing the Born Alive Executive Order to ensure that all precious babies born alive, no matter their circumstances, receive the medical care that they deserve. The president said this is our sacrosanct moral duty. Well, in 2002, President George W. Bush, he signed into law a bill extending legal protection to infants born alive at any stage of development, including after an abortion. The law, however, lacked enforcement provisions. Legislation called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act was considered in 2019. And again, this year, it would include criminal consequences for health care providers who violate the 2002 law. It also would require that proper medical care be given by the health care practitioner present if an infant is born alive. Now, the proposal emerged after Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, suggested in a live radio interview that in some circumstances, mothers and doctors should be able to deny medical care to newborns who survive an abortion. The president's executive order cannot go as far as legislation, but the Born Alive bill, if passed, would mandate that children born alive in an abortion clinic be transported to a hospital, require health care workers to report violations, impose penalties of up to five years in prison for intentionally killing a newborn, and grant the mother immunity from prosecution and cause of action against the abortion if, if the child wasn't cared for. Well, Democrats uh, oppose the legislation, calling it redundant. After the president's announcement on Wednesday morning, March for Life President Gene Mancini said the president had stepped up for life, saying his actions today provide necessary legal protections for some of the most vulnerable in society, survivors of failed abortions. Mancini, in a written statement, added, these steps had to be taken because some Democrats in the Senate promised to block legislation that mandates basic medical care for children who survive an abortion, an extremist view shared by vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris. And while any abortion is too many, any one is too many, the reality is that Americans overwhelmingly want to see greater protections for the most vulnerable. These protections are a strong step in the right direction, and the Senate should move quickly to codify the president's executive order and pass Senator Ben Sass. Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president in the next week or so, we're being told, will be laying out his vision for health care. Well, some of that's already been put out there. Uh, telemedicine and lowering the cost of drugs, protecting pre-existing conditions. But the president's going to lay out some additional health care steps in the coming uh, weeks. 
Um, two weeks, the White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, said Tuesday when asked if the president's health care plan exists. Well, Vice President Mike Pence told CBS News on Tuesday that the president's health care plan will include taking executive an- uh, action rather to guarantee Americans with pre-existing conditions must be covered by health insurance, even as his administration works to dismantle those same protections under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, well, essentially, he's trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act that happens to have those protections in it. Well, the president also has been very clear that we are going to make sure that any American with a pre-existing condition continues to have coverage, uh, the vice president said. The president's going to take action in the weeks ahead to ensure that we're going to continue to take our case to the to Capitol Hill and pass new health care reform bill. Well, the president is expected to deliver remarks on health care when he visits Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, the latest deadline set by the White House is less than two months before the 2020 election, but there is virtually no chance that legislation will be approved by Congress and ready for Trump to sign before November 3rd. This would be legislation he intends to implement if given a second term. California, the world's fifth largest economy and the state that created U.S. car culture, will stop selling gasoline-powered automobiles within 15 years, according to Governor Kevin, Gavin Newsom, In his announcement yesterday and executive order, facing a record-breaking wildfire season as well as years of heat waves and droughts exacerbated by what he argues is climate change, the Golden State is seeking to accelerate the shift away from combustion engines on the roads, which account for more greenhouse gas emissions than any other source. He says, far too many decades we have allowed cars to pollute the air that our children and families breathe. He made the announcement and the executive order on Wednesday. You deserve to have a car that doesn't give your kids asthma. Our cars shouldn't make wildfires worse and create more days filled with smoky air. Well, under Newsom's order, the state's air regulator, the California Air Resource Board, will develop regulations that ensure every new passenger car and truck sold in the state is electric or otherwise zero emissions by 2035. And the plan would give industry rather until 2045 to make sure medium and heavy duty vehicles are zero emission when feasible. Transportation currently accounts for the largest source of emissions in the state, outpacing the industrial, agricultural and residential sectors combined. Well, the order does not prevent Californians from owning gas-powered cars, selling used cars with internal combustion engines or buying them outside the state. Uh, because of its market muscle, California's move could have ripple effects across the country and propel automakers to ramp up their production of electric vehicles. Thirteen other states in the District of Columbia already follow California's fuel efficiency standards, and auto manufacturers have long built cars to meet its more stringent spec- specifications. Uh, we've seen this show before where California does something and others jump on board. Carl Bauer, who's a veteran auto industry analyst now serving as executive analyst for the website IC Cars. The auto industry, he points out, is already embarking on a rapid shift toward autonomous vehicles and electrification, he's noted. But to meet the aggressive timeline laid out by Newsom on Wednesday, the market for electric vehicles in the state would need to boom in coming years. And of course, they'd have to be much more affordable than they are Now, there would have to be much more accommodation for recharging those electric vehicles and much, much more. Well, Victor Davis Hansen points out in a recent Daily Signal uh, commentary that the news as we know it is pretty much dead of self-inflicted 
wounds. It's no longer reliable, he argues. He points out that in 2017, the liberal Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard University found that 93 percent of CNN's coverage of the Trump administration was negative. The center found similarly negative Trump coverage at other major news outlets as well. The election year 2020 has only accelerated the asymmetrical bias to the point that major newspapers and network and cable news organizations are now fused with the Joe Biden campaign. Sometimes stories are covered only in terms of political agendas. Take COVID-19. The media assures us that the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic has been a disaster, but their conclusions are not supported by any of the evidence. In the United States, the coronavirus death rate per million people is similar to or lower than most major European countries except Germany. When the virus was at its worst before the partisan campaign of this election year heated up, the governors in our four largest states had only compliments for Trump and his administration. Democrats Andrew Cuomo of New York, Gavin Newsom of California, and Republicans Greg Abbott of Texas and Ron DeSantis of Florida effusely praised the administration's cooperation with their own frontline efforts. The most recent conclusions of impartial heads of federal agencies responsible for coordinating national and state policies are about the same. Dr. Deborah Burks, advisor to both the Obama and Trump administration on responses to infectious diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Scott uh, Gottlieb, former head of the Food and Drug Administration, have not faulted the Trump administration's overall COVID-19 response. They attribute any shortcomings to initial global ignorance about the origins and nature of the epidemic, incompetence at the World Health Organization, or the initial inability of bureaucrats to produce easily available and reliable test kits. Prominent progressive Trump critics, such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, criticized the necessary Trump travel ban, yet Pelosi told people there was no reason to cancel planned travel to San Francisco's Chinatown. However, the real warping of the news is not just a matter of slanting coverage, but deliberately not covering the news at all. In the past two weeks, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has achieved the most stunning breakthrough in Middle East diplomacy in over half a century. Countries once hostile to Israel, such as the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, now formally recognize it. Other Arab nations may follow. Ancient existential enemies, Kosovo and Serbia, also agreed to normalize their relationship with Israel by signing economic agreements. Yet none of these historic events have drawn much media attention at all. All of them would have been uh, canonized where they achieved by the Obama administration. In 2017, the media suggested that Trump's plans to get out of Iran, the nuclear deal and the Paris Climate Accord to confront Chinese uh, mercantilism, to forge new alliances between Israel and moderate uh, moderate, um, Arab regimes, to isolate and uh, ascendant Iran, to close the southern border to illegal immigrants, to jawbone NATO alliance members into honoring their defense expenditure commitments and to destroy ISIS and weaken Hezbollah were all impossible counterproductive or sheer madness. And now, an embargoed and bankrupt Iran is teetering on the brink. Its international terrorism appendages, including Hezbollah, are broke. China is increasingly being ostracized by much of the world. These were all considered impossible. The U.S. has cut its carbon emissions, often at a rate superior to those nations still adhering to the the Paris Climate Agreement. Cross-border illegal immigration has been reduced, according to many metrics. ISIS was bombed into near disillusion. Modern regimes in the Middle East are uh, ascendant. Radical cliques like Hamas and Al-Qaeda are not. More NATO members are meeting their commitments. The alliance's uh, uh, aggregate defense investments are way up. 
Is any of that considered news? Well, under the current metric, not really. Instead, every three or four days, the public is fed a series of fantasy bombshells, much like the daily hysterics of Robert Mueller's investigation into alleged collusion between the Trump team and Russia, a two-year media hype dud. In recent weeks, the media warned us that Trump was dismantling the U.S. Postal Service to disrupt mail-in balloting. Trump, we are told, has decided never to concede his sure loss in November and might have to be forcibly removed, perhaps by the military. We read that Trump defiled the memory of fallen American soldiers in cemeteries abroad. We were lectured that Trump supposedly never took COVID-19 seriously. All of these stories were either demonstrably untrue, were supported only by a non sources or were sensationalism of authors hawking books. Yet such concocted melodramas will continue each week up to election day, while fundamental geostrategic shifts abroad brought uh, about by American diplomacy will, by intent, go unnoticed. The news that we once understood is dead. It's been replaced by an unnoose, a political narrative created by partisans who believe the noble ends of destroying Trump justify any biased means necessary, including destroying their own reputation and craft. Things have certainly changed. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. One of the things that we're lacking in this civilization is common sense. In fact, civilization requires collective common sense. Once again, Victor Davis Hansen points out that without common sense in government, civilization cannot continue. Well, after the summer protests and rioting in many large cities, activists demanded a defunding or at least radical pullbacks of police. So-called crime experts often concurred. So some city governments ignored public warnings and diminished their police presence despite a sharp rise in crime in many cities. Looting and arson were often ignored. If you call 911 in a large American city, there is no guarantee that anyone will answer promptly and send out police to aid the endangered. So gun sales have soared. Some people have never before owned weapons or even opposed the use of firearms are now terrified to remain unarmed. Self-protection often outweighs abstract ideology. Well, according to a recent Gallup poll, most African-Americans favor maintaining or increasing police presence. Often city officials who support cutting back on law enforcement still expect their own homes and property to be constantly policed. The same is often true of activist elites who live far from the inner city. Large swaths of the American West are now charred by out-of-control wildfires. Some governors and many federal bureaucrats blame the conflagration on climate change, but those who actually live within forests or on mountains and foothills that are historically vulnerable to wildfires know that the epic droughts of 2013 and 15 killed or dried out millions of acres of trees and vegetation. Yet most of these decaying trees were never removed by authorities. They now predictably provide the fuel for the current wildfire Armageddon. A few veteran forest managers have been uh, proverbial voices in the wilderness in recent years. They've warned that ignoring dead trees, limiting the sort of domestic animal grazing that reduces dead brush and dry foliage, forbidding timber companies from harvesting decaying timber and preventing periodic controlled burns were collectively a prescription for the very disaster that now cloud western skies with fires, smoke and air pollution. In other words, pragmatic people once understood that tens of millions of dead trees were not to be left alone as mulch for pre-modern ecosystems. In the present, the dried-up vegetation has served as a veritable napalm, causing traditional fall wildfires to blow up into biblical conflagrations 
that consume homes, property, and people. The public trust in science depends on its consistency, its transparency, and its divorce from politics and ideology. There can be no left or right, liberal or conservative, blue state or red state slant if scientific expertise is to be taken seriously. Unfortunately, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the very opposite has sometimes been the case. There is, of course, the World Health Organization. Initially swore that the virus was not transmissible by humans, didn't warrant travel bans or mask wearing, and was not a significant global threat. The organization's Chinese patrons had given the World Health Organization an unscientific party line and its dictator, then branded the propaganda with superficial scientific authority. Well, American experts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other federal health agencies were often inconsistent on travel bans, on testing, on masks, quarantines, medical therapies, and intolerant of dissident medical research. Authorities rarely could consistently explain to the public how the virus was spread, why children who were rarely stricken were kept from attending school, and whether quarantines were aimed at flattening the curve of infection, eliminating it altogether, or just waiting out the virus. The elderly were rightly deemed the most vulnerable, but then inexplicably were then often exposed to newly arrived infection patients in their long-term care facilities. When millions of people hit the streets to protest the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police, many healthcare professionals ignored the supposedly dangerous mass meeting that it had earlier insisted were major public health threats. More than a thousand health professionals sympathetic to the protests even signed an open letter declaring that social activism was, for the moment, more important than social distancing. This during a global pandemic. When supporters of President Donald Trump then went to open air rallies, many medical experts suddenly called these assemblies dangerous to public health. In truth, either both or neither types of public uh, outings are dangerous. For six months, experts have given the American public contradictory and weaponized electioneer directives on masks, social distancing, lockdowns, school closures, and workplace policies. All of these matters of public health reveal the disasters that follow when common sense is ignored and ideology reigns. And today, common sense is ignored and ideology reigns. Most Americans know that only the police can protect the vulnerable in times of social chaos. Most people instinctively sense that when vast swaths of dead trees are not removed from dense forests, they will eventually serve as kindling for raging firestorms. And when scientific expertise offers ever-changing, inconsistent, and occasionally absurd public health advice, then people turn to their own instincts and innate common sense to protect themselves and their livelihoods. Experts, not common citizens, not common sense, have been failing America. Again, when common sense is absent, uh, civilization crumbles, and we find ourselves on the precipice of just that. Well, there's a lot coming up in the days ahead. We've got the first presidential debate coming up on Tuesday. We have the election coming in less than 40 days. We have a Supreme Court justice vote that's going to happen in the Senate sooner rather than later. And, of course, all the railing against what may or may not happen with the, uh, with the election as ballots are cast, either by mail, absentee ballot, or at polling places. This is going to be a very difficult season ahead, and I hope all of us take seriously the access that we have been granted to the throne of grace, asking God for wisdom and direction. How can we, as followers of Christ, reflect his character, reflect his glory back into our communities in a way that will, uh, will have an impact Uh, That requires all of us to spend considerable time on our knees, uh, asking God for wisdom and direction and the ability to put our 
commitment to him as ambassadors of Christ above all else, how do we reflect the assignment that he has given us during this challenging season? And that will be precisely our challenge. And I hope each of us takes it very seriously. Whether or not we see a place, a role for us to play in influencing anyone else, we need to be prepared for the days ahead because I believe God will open doors for us that we had not anticipated because of the turmoil that not only is uh, taking place now, but I believe will increase in the days ahead. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. I want to encourage you to join us tomorrow as we take some uh, time to look at the lighter side of the news. I think we'll have a little bit of fun with that. We'll also cover the day's headlines, so do join us. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.